everyone. Welcome to The Full Cup. This is our first episode. Well, it's actually our second recording because our first episode did not record. So here we are again. Uh, I'm sitting here with my dad, Craig Berthold, and we're going to talk a little bit today about, well, why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about? Well, you, you, you told me that you wanted me to talk about what I do all day long. And basically, I tell people that I'm in the change business. So we're going to talk about how I help people to change. Um, more than that, I, I guess, do you want me to just go ahead and get started with this? Sure. Yeah, go for it. Most of the change that I help people with has to do with changing unconsciously. Uh, in my own life, I found that in my cognition, in the frontal front parts of my brain, I'll say to myself, okay, I'm not going to let that bother me anymore. When my wife does that, I'm not going to be offended by that. I'm not going to be hurt by that. I'm just going to love her and not let it bother me. And then she does it, and it sets me off. And I go, oh, Jesus, that drives me crazy. And so no matter how much I try to change in my cognition, if I don't change unconsciously, I never seem to make the change. So it's been my experience that I've got to change both consciously and unconsciously. Uh, how I view this unconscious, I'm going to take a minute and, and talk to you how I view it. And I'm not alone in this, but I, I view this, this unconscious, this part of my brain like a computer. And I believe that every bit of history that I've ever experienced is in the computer. I'm talking about, Libby, you could go back to the word you missed in the second grade on the spelling test and, and find that when you go into the unconscious. Uh, Russ, I, I believe that uh, you can find what it was like inside your mother's womb. That's how incredible this computer is. Oh, by so, the way, Russ is here joining us. He's yes. my dad's friend, and yeah. he's hanging out with us today. Uh, Russ has uh, been a friend of mine for 35 years. So let's see. Where was I? The womb. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the unconscious. So it is my belief that the history that we have creates what we call in my work uh, a neurological unconscious submodality. The th simplest way of thinking about that is this. I think of the, the uh, neurological submodality as a lens. In other words, the history that we have can create lenses through which we view the world. Uh, a quick example that I give a lot is, and this happens every day, a young woman comes in to see me. Let's say she's 20 years of age. This just happened a few months ago again. And uh, she says, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm ugly. Nobody likes me. I don't think I'll ever marry. I'm depressed. I want to die. I don't want to go on. And I look at her and say, what are you talking about? You're beautiful. Uh, you're bright. You're easy to talk to. She says, no, I'm not. You're just saying that. You're just trying to make me feel good. I, I know I'm ugly. And, and I'm astonished. I said, why, why does she feel this way? I take her history. In her history, she doesn't tell me anything that's going wrong or that has gone wrong. But she continues to see me. And about four or five weeks later, she recounts to me in the sixth grade, she liked this boy named Johnny. Well, she told her girlfriend, I think Johnny's cute. The next day at school, the girlfriend tells the whole school, Sally likes Johnny, la, 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 like it goes in the sixth grade. She doesn't care. She says, I don't care. I, I, I think he's cute. I like him. Yeah. I want him to know that I like him. Well, later that day, the whole school's let out. They're leaving, going across the lawn. There's a whole group of kids. And uh, they started teasing her again outside. Sally likes Johnny, la, 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 la. And Johnny was there. And then they, the boys started teasing Johnny. Hey, Johnny, what you going to do? You going to kiss her? Ah. Well, we men don't necessarily like to admit this, but women actually have a more balanced brain than men do. Uh, they use both sides of their brain quite regularly and easily. 
men can use both sides of their brain, but it's like they have a 40 lane highway going back and forth. And we men have a four lane highway going back and forth. And that will explain a lot in the, in the weeks to come. But they started teasing Johnny. What's he going to do, Johnny? Are you going to kiss her? Well, Johnny's an emotional boy. He doesn't know what to do. He's embarrassed. So he runs up to her and says, well, well, Sally, uh, I hate you and you're ugly and I never would like you and ran away. Broke Sally's heart. She went home and told her mom, mom, am I ugly? And mom says, no, you're not ugly. You're beautiful. What are you talking about? Well, Johnny said, oh, Johnny, don't listen to those boys. You're beautiful. And to herself, she said, yeah, moms are supposed to say that. I'm probably really ugly. Well, that started this neural pathway, this this lens that she had. Uh, junior high comes along, and as many of you probably remember, junior high romances last about two weeks, if you're lucky. And after a couple of romances that lasted two weeks, and each one of them broke up because the boy would say, well, I like, I like Karen instead, or I like Jill instead, or whatever. She would say, oh, no, it must be me. I'm ugly. Oh, and she returned to the same place every time a little heartbreak would come in. Boys hate me. I'm ugly. So when she comes to see me at 20 years of age, she really has this lens on that she's ugly and that nobody's going to like her and she's never going to marry. She's still wearing the Johnny lens. I tell her I'm the guy with the Windex. I show people how to clear off those lenses, how to change those neurological unconscious submodalities. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks or months showing people how we can change those earliest lenses that our history has given us. And that is the way we view the world, our lenses. Oftentimes, yeah. Not completely, but mostly. But we have more than just visual things. We have things called neurological unconscious anchors. Now, let me tell you what an anchor is for just a minute, Libby. How many of you have been listening to the radio? A song comes on the radio from years ago. Unless you hear the song. It takes you to another time. You kind of go, oh, my goodness, take me back. Yeah, that reminds me. Well, this is going to age me, but every time I hear the Beach Boys, I love the Beach Boys, it takes me back. I was at Bear Lake, and I was 14. I didn't want to be there. I was sitting in the sand, angry that I wasn't home with my parents, but my parents said I had to come there with them. And walking down the beach came Venus. She walked right up to me and stopped and looked down at me and said, hi, what's your name? And I jumped up and said, uh, Craig. And she said, I'm just going for a walk. Would you like to walk with me? And so we started walking down the beach. Somehow the cabins we were walking by must have been playing the Beach Boys. But we walked and walked and walked. This was about, oh, nine o'clock at night. The sun was going down. We came back from the beach, got home, got back at about 11, ran home into the place we were staying, and my dad got angry. Where have you been? We thought you'd drowned. You can't run off like that. And you better believe the next day, instead of being there at 9 o'clock, I was out there at 6.30 thinking, is she coming again? And here she came again. And the second night, we walked again. Now, I've been married almost 50 years. I love my wife to pieces. I can't, I can't imagine my life without her. She means more to me than anything. But when I hear a Beach Boy song, I go to Bear Lake. I do remember that she was in high school and I was in ninth grade, which I thought was a major accomplishment. <laughs> but that's how an anchor works. Those are positive anchors, a song on the radio. If I smell 
Elsha Cologne. Junior high flashes before me. It's like, oh man, remember York and John and Kevin and da 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 da. If I smell Old Spice, I picture my grandfather in his underwear. And I picture you in your underwear. <laughs> yes, you probably did. And that's probably why I wear Old Spice because it does remind me of my grandfather. Yeah. So you understand how anchors work. And those are good anchors, but we have negative anchors. Libby, there's a look that I can give you, and you look at me like, what, Dad? What? Well, maybe that's the look that I gave you when you were 10 before I gave you a whooping. Well, I don't think I ever gave you a whooping, but maybe I got after you. Mm -hmm. And so I give you that look, and you go, what was that look for, Dad? Or there may be a tone of voice that, that your mom uses to me, and I go, well, why are you yelling at me? And she says, I'm not yelling at you. I said, yeah, you just yelled at me. No, I didn't. But maybe that was the tone of voice that my mother used when I was 10 and she was yelling at me and mad at me. And so when my wife uses that same tone, it takes me back. I may not even get the history, but I might, I might get what we call the neurological response or the feeling that's attached to that. We now know that we can change not just the history. Oh, people say you can't change the history. Yes, you can. And I'll explain that here in a minute change the history, change the neurological response, or actually change the actual anchor. Let me tell you how we change history, Rick. One day, my wife said to me, we were talking about a trip we had taken to Fish Lake. And we were laughing about the, the trip because it got it snowed at night and then it got hot the next day. And our friends were with us and we were with our family. And I was laughing about how funny Kevin looked when he fell in the river and she looked at me and said, that wasn't Kevin that fell in the river. I said, yes, it was. She said, you and your memory. That was your brother, Brent. I said, Brent wasn't even, what are you talking about? That wasn't Brent. That was Kevin. She said, it was Brent. She says, call your mother. She'll know. All right, I'll bet you. We bet each other $100, shook hands. I called my mother. I said, do you remember when we went to Fish Lake? The only time we went as a whole family. You remember that? She says, I do. And do you remember when Kevin fell in the river? She says, you know, I remember that, but Craig, that wasn't Kevin that fell in the river. Oh, you're going to tell me it was my brother, Brent? Oh, no, no. It was your brother, Steve. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Now, now, she said, no, it was Steve. Which one of us is accurate? Yeah. Well, what's happened over that period, 40 years, maybe longer, 30, 20, different camping trips, maybe different people falling in the river, those neurological unconscious submodalities, those lenses begin to change automatically sometimes. And sometimes the unconscious pumps in something that it likes that maybe wasn't there before. And now that we understand that you can change neurological unconscious submodalities, what does that say about changing issues of depression, anxiety, uh, anger, resentment? You can change all of those kinds of things once you understand how to change lenses, anchors, uh, or DTs. And now let's, let's go to DTs. So we've talked about neurological unconscious anchors and now and neurological unconscious submodalities lenses. Let's now talk about neurological unconscious. I'm going to actually spell this out. They are neurological. They're part of our neurological system and they happen automatically. So we call it unconscious. They're also defensive. It's how we protect ourselves. Freud called these things defense mechanisms like flight. Mm -hmm. I'm nervous. I got to get out of here. Oh boy, I'm really nervous. Got to go. Denial. I didn't do it. Well, maybe I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, sublimation, reaction, formation, all, all of the different things that Freud came up with 
we know he was quite accurate with this. A lot of Freudian stuff we, we don't follow today. Uh, I think it's a wonderful field. I don't think we need to see people five times a week for 15 years. But what he taught us about how we protect ourselves, I think, was absolute right on. But then Frank Dottilio, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, said, well, they're much more than that. They're a pattern of behavior that we've learned to protect ourselves. They're a template in this neurological uh, schizoid pattern that we use to construct our personality. So we now call them neurological unconscious defensive templated schematics. We'll shorten the word and call them DTs. So what we learn early in our lives is we learn ways of protecting ourselves. I'll tell you a couple to give you a few examples of this and how this works. When I was a boy, as you know this, Libby, but I was eight and my mother died. And uh, that was very painful for me. I had an older brother and he and I used to fight quite a bit. Well, we, we got a stepmom and uh, loved my stepmom very much in the beginning. But then I started to struggle with her and I think she struggled with me for a while. She would yell quite a bit. I learned how to yell. And I can really yell well. Mm -hmm. You know I can. Mm -hmm. You probably remember some of those times. Yes. But what I did is I also learned how to swear. So I can swear really well, too. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is uh, when my brother and I would fight, I could never whip him. In high school, he was 230 pounds, an all-state football player, great athlete. I, I was a pretty good athlete, but I was in the ninth grade, maybe 120 pounds. But I thought I was bad. So I'd fight him. Yeah, come on, I'll fight you. Yeah, I'm tough. Let's see, 230, 120. Who's going to win in that fight? Not me. Mm -hmm. So when he would hold me down, spitting in my face, or shoot me with his BB gun for target practice or whatever, my way of protecting myself, I couldn't whoop him. So I'd go, you mother... And I would swear and scream at him like to no end. I could really swear and really yell really well. Well, then I got married. When my wife and I argue, now I called my raging profanity my black defensive template. When my wife and I get in an argument, should I use my black DT raging profanity to protect myself? What do you think? Let me no, I mean... If you want it to last, <laughs> nope. Well, as you well know, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've been married to your mom for 49 years and, you know, you're not that old, but uh, I think you were at the tail end, but I'm ashamed to say I said some really terrible things to your mm -hmm. mother when I would war with her. Yeah. My way of protecting myself would be to go into this raging profanity. That was just one of the ways. I'll tell you another one. If you're if you have a mother that dies, you're really good at shutting down on people. Mm -hmm. I can say, you're dead to me. And how's that? Is that going to work well for my relationship with my wife? Not so good. Now, your mom, she learned some wonderful ways also. As you know, her dad uh, and she, ne they, they never had a conversation in his entire, her entire life while he was alive. He would yell, and I don't know if you remember, but his yellow, yelling was kind of a... <laughs> and of all of the people, of all, she had seven brothers and sisters, the only one who would get right back in his face like a little chihuahua <laughs> is your dear mother. We call it her red 
we don't call it the word we used to call it. We now laugh that we're still married after 49 years. And we're amazed because with my black and her red, how did we survive? Mm -hmm. Well, what we did is we learned new and better ways to protect ourselves. I think I told you that I can have my black, I can have red, my shutting down. I was really good at that. I can just shut down in a minute. We'll call that my green, my pink. I'll go hide. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I found that if somebody was angry with me or something bad happened when my mother died at the funeral, I disappeared and my aunts and uncles said, where's Craig? And my dad said, that's what Craig does. When Craig gets really upset, he just goes and hides. He'll be back in a few hours. Don't huh. worry about him. And so I found, I don't remember my mother's funeral. And one day when my aunt told me that your dad said, I was 45 years of age when my aunt said, yeah, I remember you weren't at the funeral, but you had gone to hide. And I looked at her and I started laughing. And your mother looked at me and said, what are you laughing about? I said, I do that today. And she, says, she says, what do, you mean? what do you mean? She says, sometimes when we're arguing, I turn my back to the stove. You're sitting on the counter. I turn my back and you're gone. I turn around and you've disappeared. Yeah, I know. I go downstairs to my little room where I reload my shotgun shells and I'm downstairs and I put my feet up so you can't look under the door and I turn the light off and I'm hiding in there and you come down there and say, all right, we're going to finish this. No, you're, you're not getting away from where are you? I know you're down here someplace. I'm going to find you and I'm hiding. I'm not coming out. No, no, no. I'm hiding. Yeah. What? I go hide and I'm 50, 45 years. I don't hide anymore. Oh, maybe once in a while. Yeah, I do. a little bit. <laughs> when I get a little stressed. <laughs> But mainly what I've learned is, to me, the best DT that has ever been created is what psychologically we call emotional independence. Uh, what religiously we call liberty, freedom. All of your Judeo-Christians talk about it. It's agency. It's I get to decide what I think and feel. And I don't have to go and hide because I can say in my head, I'm not going to let what you said affect me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let what you've done hurt me. Well, how do I do that? Well, Viktor Frankl taught us how to do that. In the Auschwitz prison camp, he said, you don't have to, whatever they do to me. They, t they killed my mother. They killed my wife. They tortured me. They took the gold out of my teeth. They, they amputated four toes and half my foot. And I finally realized you can do what you will to me physically, but I will never again allow you to control what I think. And Viktor Frankl said, we need the Auschwitz to learn that kind of independence of thought, that emotional independence, that what Ralph Waldo Emerson would call in, there is at last nothing sacred, but the integrity of my own mind. What well, that's 1840, let's go to 1540. When John Milton said, the mind is its own place and of itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Well, in the pain of my life, I've learned this principle that I don't have to be hurt by what you said. But what it does, what you've said or what my wife says when I'm hurt, it reaches inside of me and may hit an old negative anchor. 
and I can be mad at you or your mom or my wife or friends or whatever about what they've done, or I can recognize the reason I'm upset may not have a whole lot to do with what she's done. It may have to do with some anchors inside of me that I've been packing around for years and years. And if I have not yet learned to fully emancipate from my parents or my history that has created those anchors in me, then I'm going to have a difficult time emancipating from my spouse, my children, my friends, my work, and most importantly, my God. So all of us develop DTs. Now, this is something that I can't emphasize enough. I tell people, I will never ask you to give up your DTs. That's how you protect yourself. But if the DTs I'm using, like my black, is causing problems in my relationship, that's not good. But I've still got to be protected. So do I just get rid of it? No. I find another DT, a different, a different way of protecting me that works better. And I tell people every day, I'll never ask you to give up your green, your black, your red. But once you figure out that white this independence of thought, this agency, this, this logotherapy, Viktor Frankl, this, this uh, agency, this, this freedom to think independently. Once you finally understand how to do that and you've sent enough deer down the neural pathways to create the deepest pathway in your brain of agency, independence of thought, then you'll find I don't need my black, red, green, pink, whatever, because I won't let this mess with me. And I will rescue the little boy who's packing around the anchors that still get triggered by the stuff that you do. Okay, we're just going to review. So you talked about lenses, yeah, the way we view the world from our experiences we've had. That's right. Basically. Yes. Anchors, yeah. things we hear, see, smell that remind us of our history. Basically. And, and everything in essence is an anchor. If I say jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle yeah. bells, what do you think of? Christmas. Okay, right. that's an anchor. But we, it can be a look, it can be a phrase, it can be a blink, it can be any number of things that trigger that. And I'm glad you put me back to this. This is important. These anchors, lenses, all of these things can stack and we call it neurological stacking. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to when your mother was a little girl, maybe five years of age, and she was climbing up on your grandpa's lap to give him a hug. He was busy doing the bills or something, and he says, go away, and he pushes her to the floor. She falls to the floor and runs to her bedroom going, my daddy doesn't love me, and she felt devalued, okay? Huh? that's We'll say that's the first time maybe she felt devalued, the first time, the first time the deer went down the trail, the first time we, we put a ridge in the, in the computer of being devalued. Well, the next time they moved to Utah from Idaho. She'd been playing with the neighbor girl every day for a couple of weeks. And then on a Saturday, she goes over to the neighbor girl and says, hi, Mrs. Smith, can Sally play? And the mother comes to the door and says, oh, Karen, Sally's not here. She's at little Billy's birthday party in the next block. You've only been here a couple of weeks. You didn't get invited, did you? And she goes, no. And she felt devalued again. And it stacks. Mm -hmm. The next time she's in the second grade and she's learned to write and she writes a little note to the boy sitting next to her. If you like me, check yes. If you don't like me, check the box no. What do all boys always check, Libby? No. <laughs> boys. 
check bell. And she, oh, he doesn't like me. And again and again and again, she gets into the sixth grade and she has a poster party for a friend and invites the cool kids. Well, somebody else has a poster party and the cool kids go to that party. Oh, no, I'm being devalued again. Oh. As you know, I'm an old beer drinker. We dated in high school. I don't know how to talk to girls unless I drink a couple quarts of courage. Mm-hmm. So I show up at her house and I got beer on the bread. You, you know, what have you been drinking? I had a beer too. You know, she says, you think more of your beer drinking than you think of me. Uh, not really. I really do like you. But in her mind, I devalued her. Mm-hmm. Years later, I straightened up my act. We got married. I was supposed to be at her mother's 70th birthday party to set up chairs. It was in the afternoon. I was duck hunting. I got stuck in the mud. Duck hunting is the best hunting gentlemen who are listening because you're up at four and you're back home by 10 or 11 in the morning and your wife's not even out of bed. Deer hunting, <laughs> you got to go for three days. Go, Where are you going hunting again? Well, your wife's not out of bed if she's a birth old at 11 in the morning, but okay. <laughs> you, got it. you got it. Okay. So you get home and say, oh, did you go to the bars? Yeah. Well, I went to the marsh just one day on the day of her birthday. She said, well, you're going to be home by three, aren't you? I said, I'm always home by 11 o'clock, 10, noon, latest. Okay, you got to set up chairs for my mom's birthday. Okay, so what do I do? I get out on the marsh and I get stuck in the mud bad. So bad I had to call a wrecker. Wrecker comes out, works on it, tries to get me out. I got home that night at 9 o'clock. Not only did I miss setting up the chairs, I missed the whole party. And what does your mom say? I can't believe it. You missed my family. You think more of your stupid duck hunting than you think of my family. That's all you ever think about is your duck hunting. I do love the duck hunt, but not as much as I love my family. So she's upset. Okay, so she, let's say, has been devalued maybe a hundred times in her life. And maybe inadvertently, I did it maybe 50 of those times. I didn't mean to, but in her mind, I devalued her. Okay. So she goes to my sister, who you know has a little hair shop in her basement, and she gets her hair done. And she comes home and she says, I saw your sister today. And I said, so how's my sister? How's she doing? And she says, pointing at her head, she's fine. Fluffing her hair. Point, yeah, mm-hmm. looking at her hair. Pointing <laughs> at her hair, fluffing her hair. And I go, okay, uh-oh, I don't know. I think she's upset with me. She says, well, and I said, well, what? She said, I saw your sister today and points at her hair again. I said, okay, now remember, I'm a guy, Okay. So I go, yeah, you saw her. Well, I bet, is she doing okay? Yeah, she's doing okay. Yes, she's doing fine. What do you think? And I'm going, what do I think? What? My hair. Oh, well, what do you think of it? She says, well, it's okay. Now, I promise you, I did not mean to devalue your mom by telling her hair was okay. But by saying it's okay and her interpretation is devaluation, Mm -hmm. it reaches inside and that whole stack of being devalued a hundred times comes flowing. I can't believe it. You're such a jerk. You could never appreciate anything that I ever do. I try so hard to look nice for you and you can't appreciate. And I'm in big trouble for the next several hours because Mm -hmm. I said her hair looked okay. Mm -hmm. Because I hit that stack of anchors. Not only are we going to learn how to eliminate the individual anchors, but also the stacks of anchors. And you said something in our last interview, and I'd like you to say it again, that that this 
work that we're going to be doing these these uh, what are these called podcasts? Podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they are. That we want to kind of follow them because they build on each other, and and we're going to talk about how individual anchors and stacked anchors are developed and how we change them. Uh, next time, hopefully, we're going to talk about why it's so difficult to identify. The, the, the individual anchors and, and how they get triggered, but also how to identify the stacks of anchors so that when my wife says something to me and hits that stack, I don't go black on her. Right. Or when I hit her stack, she doesn't go red on me or even need to go, you know, I'm not going to let this mess with me because hopefully I will have resolved not only the anchors, but the stacks of anchors. And that's when you come to realize that's why marriage and family is so important. Because our spouses, our children, our friends are designed to poke us in the unfinished, unconscious anchors of our soul. We'd never get them resolved if people don't poke them and we learn how to fix them. Most people just bury them and hope they don't get poked. And if they get poked, get mad at their spouse. Why did you poke me there? You know that upsets me when I do that. Instead of saying, you probably need to poke me there because I need to get that resolved. Nobody ever says that until they come to see me and they realize, oh, I got to get that crap resolved, don't I? Yeah, got to work through it. Okay. So it's making sense. Yes. Yeah. And uh, then the questions. last thing we covered was defensive templates, DTs. You had like 17 names for these, but we're going to call them how we protect ourselves is, is our DT. Our DTs, defensive templates. defensive templates. Freud called them defense mechanisms, but they're exact. They're, they're patterns, neurological patterns that we've learned unconsciously to protect ourselves. And we then use them to construct our personality. Let's see, if I learn to swear and rage to construct my personality, could it be that in my personality I swear once in a while? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Not Then so. we'd be good friends. Yeah. <laughs> hey. I'm sorry I taught you that, Libby. <laughs> it's but okay. it's not nearly like it used to be right. because I've realized maybe I don't need to use the swearing. Maybe I can use what I call the white DT, which is I'm not going to let this mess with me. When that guy cuts me off on the highway, now I don't. You ask me to dance, mother, we're going to dance. No, I don't do that anymore. Right. You cut me off now, I say, my bad, dude. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm not going to let some 40-year-old guy mess with my time, my day, my mood, because I'm learning this independence of thought, this agency, that I get to determine what I think and what I feel. And I don't have to let the world dictate to me what I think and feel. Um, I am wondering, you did talk a little bit about um, the deer down the pathway. Okay. And I don't know if you want to explain that because I understand that. Or should we save that for next time? And we'll just say, if you don't know what deer down the pathway means, here, I'll do it quick. Okay. It means in our, mm, let's see if I can remember this. <laughs> in our brains, we create neuro pathways through how we respond to things. And the uh, more it, we respond to something one way, it makes the trail deeper in our brain. It's not necessarily like the response. Just think of everything that you've ever learned. Okay. is nothing more than a neural pathway in the cauliflower of the brain, a little squiggle in the cauliflower okay. of the brain. And that little squiggle we call a neural pathway. Okay. okay. A neural pathway is just like a deer trail. So let's say we're high, we're camping in the mountains and tomorrow morning we're going to get up and we're going to walk down into the canyon and, and fish and wade in the river. Oh, but we get up in the morning and there's this thick oak brush we can't seem to get. So we walk along the edge of the oak brush until we find a little deer trail and we follow a little deer trail right down to the river and we spend the day down the river. Now, if one deer every day has been using that deer trail, it's a pretty good deer trail. It goes down in the morning and back and down in the evening uh -huh. and back. 
pretty good deer trail. But if a hundred deer every day have been using the deer trail, going down the trail and coming back, it's probably, excuse me, it's probably a better deer trail. And you probably won't tear your shirt when you go down that deer trail. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go. We're not, we haven't been back to that place camping for five years and all the deer have gone. They've, they've been shot, taken away, whatever. What happens to the deer trail? Grows over. And that's exactly what happens to the brain. Okay. So everything you've ever learned, two plus two equals four. Oh, mm -hmm. one deer went down the trail. Two plus two equals mm -hmm. four. Another deer went down the trail. Two plus two equals another deer went down the trail. And after you've said that a hundred times, how much is two plus two? It's four. Now let's forever. talk about something like depression. Oh, I hate life. My life sucks. Nobody loves me. Oh, I'm no good. I hate myself. You hear the deer I'm sending down the trail? I do. What yes. if the deer trail is, I'm God's kid. I'm special. How many deer have I sent down the deer trail of depression? Oh, I'm miserable. Versus how many times have I sent down the trail? No, I'm special. Or let's say, how many times did my dad say, I hate your guts. You make me sick. I wish you weren't a part of this family. Or how many times did my dad say, I love you so much. You mean so much to me. Yeah. And we're going to learn how we can create those deer paths. And even though we may have a negative deer path, let me talk about a little bit more. I told you about my defensive template of black. How many deer did I send down the, the, the pathway of black raging profanity? Thousands, maybe millions. Now I'm trying not to swear anymore. I'm trying to go down this new pathway. This little, this little creek will, the black canyon or the black deer trail is deep because I've sent hundreds of thousands of deer down that pathway. This new pathway of independence of thought, self-mastery, agency. Maybe it's kind of like the, well, we haven't talked about this yet. Let's go there for a minute. But it's like the Grand Canyon of black versus Centerville Creek of white. Mm -hmm. So when I get stressed, I'm probably going to go down the black canyon. Patricia Love, a noted neuropsychologist, spells it out this way. She said that the brain is like a mound of dirt on your driveway, 30 feet high. You climb up on top of it. You put a sprinkler on top of it. You go down, you turn the water on, you leave it on for 20 minutes. You go out there at the end of the day, you can't even tell it's been on. The sun comes out, dries out the dirt, you can't even tell it's been on. But if you leave the sprinkler on for four days, five days, six days, you go out there and you find that the, re the dirt's reached the point of saturation. Little trickles start running together, forming rivulets. And you go out there a week later and there's these deep canyons duck, mm -hmm. dug in the dirt. So we will use over the next several weeks and months these, these two frames of canyons in the dirt or neural pathways that the deer have created. And you can actually create new neural pathways of confidence love, self-esteem, all of those kinds of things, or you can continue going down the same old pathways and deepen the pathways that might not be the healthiest for you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Completely. So we'll talk a lot about okay. deer trails and neural pathways in the weeks. Okay. Time. I just wanted to clear that up. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank and, you. uh, yeah, next week we will move on to... Well, we're going to talk about next week why it's difficult sometimes to create new neural pathways and how we overcome some of the old ones. We're also going to talk a lot more about this emotional independence, which my practice has been based upon for 42 years. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Russ. Thanks, Russ. All okay. right, see you guys. Yeah. Bye.